Hello and welcome to episode two of Historical True Crime. Uh, last week we covered Marianne Cotton, potentially Britain's very first serial killer. And today we're going to cross back over the pond uh, to the United States and we're going to cover the case of the servant girl Annihilator, also known as the Austin Axe Murderer and Midnight Assassin. So we've got to travel back to 1885, and this is going to be 75 years before the term serial killer was even coined. However, it's going to be this year that Austin did experience who could perhaps be America's first serial killer. The servant girl Annihilator is responsible for the deaths of eight people between 1884 and Christmas Eve of 1885. He would attack his victims in their beds, drag them outside, and mutilate the bodies. I'm going to be referring to the killer as a he throughout the podcast because we do have some eyewitness claims um, that it was in fact a man. But, spoiler alert, his crimes to this day remain unsolved. I'd like to go back to what Austin in 1885 would have been like. So two decades before this, Austin's going to be a very small, rustic, kind of a cow town. The population is likely under 5,000 people. But in 1885, the population will have grown to 23,000. So you have a um, large amount of growth in a very small amount of time. Locals actually begin to refer to the city as the Athens of the West. And this is because Austin has three colleges, the two-year-old University of Texas, um, St. Edward's College, which is predominantly for Irish Catholic immigrants, and the Tillotson Collegiate and Normal Institute for Black students. So Austin is really a booming city at this point. It's on the up and up. They're experiencing a lot of growth. Businesses are opening and many well-off families have settled in the town. And these families are going to have black servants, also known as servant girls. I want to talk about um, how the murderer gets his name, even before we discuss the details of the murders themselves. So according to an article on um, Culture Map Austin, the murders were first known, or the murders themselves were first known as the Austin Axe murders, uh, until a very well-known resident, William Sidney Porter, writes a letter to a friend. And it's in this letter that he says, town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators, who make things lively during the dead of night. What an absolutely morbid thing to write to a friend. Um, I think it's it's very odd uh, to think that these murders are making things lively in Austin. Um, they should be inciting fear and panic, and, and they do. Um, but it's after this letter becomes public that locals and reporters are going to start to refer to the murderer as uh, the servant girl annihilator. So that's where the name actually comes from. So the first victim is Molly Smith, and Molly Smith and her husband, Walter Spencer, are a young African-American couple who cleaned and cooked for a local wealthy family. They lived in that family's home on what was known at the time as West Pecan Street. So it's going to be the night of December 30th, 1884. Walter's going to wake up from his bed dead of night in utter agony. He has a deep gash to his face and he is absolutely covered in blood. After the initial shock, uh, he kind of wakes up and he realizes someone's trashed our entire room. They're all, they've also left a trail of blood leading outside to the outhouse. So Walter 
gets out of bed, he follows the trail and he makes the gruesome discovery of the body of his wife, who is lying dead in the backyard with axe wounds to her head, abdomen, chest, legs, and arms. The police are called and everyone's just confounded. No one understands why this attack happened. Um, There are no suspects. And it's after a search of Molly and Walter's room that the murder weapon is discovered. And it is a blood-covered axe. At this point, after murder number one, there are no arrests. The trail runs cold and it's going to be over six months before the servant girl annihilator will be heard from again. Uh, And he reemerges on May 6th of 1884. So we have Eliza Shelley, a black cook who is discovered by her employer murdered. Uh, She's discovered in her cabin behind her employer's house where she's lived with her, um, where she lived with her three children. So the brutality increases from the first to the second murder because Shelley's head is almost completely split in two by an ax. They discover her with blood covered sheets underneath, uh, meaning it was really likely the attack occurred while she slept and she was then dragged to the floor. There is a report that Shelley's um, eight-year-old son does see a man in the middle of the night in the cabin, um, but he probably thinks it's a dream. He goes back to sleep, uh, and when he wakes up in the morning, he actually doesn't remember any other details. So the case is going to unfortunately go cold again after murder number two. Um, No suspects are arrested, and uh, the case seems to stall. It's only going to be two weeks until the Servant Girl Annihilator is going to strike again. And this is a real difference because in between murder number one and two, we've got six whole months that pass by. But between victims two and three, a very short cooling off period of only two weeks. So on May 23rd, 1885, Irene Cross, a young servant, was murdered. Again, this murder uh, takes place while the victim is sleeping, and it's reported that it actually looks like Irene has been completely scalped, and her left arm is almost completely detached from her body. We've got three incredibly gruesome, horrific crime scenes that have occurred, and it's going to be August when the killer strikes again. This time, a servant girl named Rebecca. So for some reason, um, he doesn't actually kill Rebecca. Instead, he takes her 11-year-old daughter, Mary. And Mary is going to be raped and stabbed through the ears with an iron rod. While she initially does survive the attack, uh, she passes away a few hours later. September 26th is going to mark another escalation for the Annihilator because it's going to be the first time that he will take two victims in one night. So Gracie Vance and her boyfriend or husband, uh, depends on the report, lived and worked in the home of a local attorney. They're again asleep when they're attacked, so very consistent with the earlier murders. And according to a local paper, Gracie's head is actually almost beaten into a jelly-like consistency. So police do discover that the killer accessed their cabin through a window and in the home, two other servants that night are also attacked and raped, but both of them are going to survive. We have an eyewitness account. So according to an article on historic mysteries, one of the survivors, Lucina, does report that the killer actually speaks to her just after he murders Gracie. And she says that he screams, don't look at me. 
uh, and that's it. It's also reported that Gracie is found clutching a gold watch that didn't belong to anyone in the household. So even though we have two survivors in this case, as well as potentially a gold watch um, belonging to the killer, we again have no suspects and no leads. So the case runs cold. At this point in the killing spree, Austin is paralyzed with fear. And I think that's completely understandable. You have six murders, uh, all very gruesome, all very brutal, and zero arrests. So in response, the police uh, are going to nearly triple in size, and armed citizens are going to start patrolling the streets. Um, Many people just were taking extra safety precautions, uh, and this included increased patrols of neighborhoods, having people be in their homes before sundown, and 24-hour saloons started to close at midnight. Despite some reports, Austin's famous moon towers are not constructed during this time. That didn't happen until later in the 1890s. I think it's really interesting because we have an article from the New York Times from this time period and how they describe what was happening in Austin. Um, So the New York Times article reported that the murders were committed by some cunning madman who was completely insane on the subject of killing women. Not a comforting title or excerpt from the newspaper and probably did nothing to help the citizens of Austin feel safe. Um, We also have eyewitness testimonies that are coming out and they're very contradictory because they describe the killer's complexion as both light and dark. Uh, Several described him as being a yellow colored man. Some said he acted alone while others claim they see a gang of men. And we're going to talk about the police investigation a little later in the podcast, but I want to say that it, you know, to be fair, um, it would have been hard to nail down a suspect and a description with all of the information coming at the police force that didn't make a lot of sense. So to this point, all of the victims uh, were African-American, even if they weren't all servant girls. But the final two murders, which are going to occur on Christmas Eve of 1885, are going to look very different. After Ula and Susan's murders, uh, according to Texas Monthly, on Christmas Day, more than 500 city business leaders, lawyers, doctors, and clergymen are going to attend a meeting uh, to create a plan to stop the killings. A lot of proposals are going to come from this meeting, um, including lighting up the entire city at night with lamps or having fire alarms go off whenever the next attack happened so people could hunt the killer down. One former Confederate soldier even suggests that soldiers be stationed all around Austin and prevent anyone from leaving after a murder so that they can question everybody in town about their whereabouts. Despite all of this planning, after Christmas Eve of 1885, the killings just stop. In total, eight are dead and at least another five are wounded. So you might be asking, well, A year of murders has just happened in Austin. What have the police been doing? Um, How do I I want to say this nicely, but the investigation was hindered uh, for lack of of a better word by like complete and utter incompetence on the police force. Uh, According to Skip Hollinsworth for Texas Monthly, a year before the killings began, Grooms Lee, who is the son of a local politician, is chosen as Austin's police chief. In 1884, a group of local aldermen attempt to impeach Lee. Uh, They charge that the police force spends more time in saloons and brothels than they did patrolling the streets. There's also rumors that city money has gone missing, and some of the officers themselves were committing robberies. 
this is not going to be the police force that you want investigating a crime of this magnitude. Unfortunately, this is the police force that Austin has. So Lee decides that he's going to focus the investigation on black men. Uh, We've got bloody footprints that are found at several of the crime scenes. And so Lee decides it's a great idea to simply arrest black men who aren't wearing shoes. Again, no one said that black people were treated equally in the South in this time because they for sure were not. Um, Other black men were stopped simply because they had a reputation. Turns out none of these men were the murderers and they couldn't be charged or held without any actual evidence. But we do get several arrests and trials in this case. And the first one is going to happen in early December 1885 when the district attorney, James Robertson, who happens to be the mayor's brother, lots of nepotism going on in this town, um, he decides to try Walter Spencer, who is the husband of the first victim, Molly Smith, for murder. The trial lasts two days. Spencer ends up being acquitted, um, not the murderer, so they have to move on. Lee is eventually replaced as police chief by James Lucy, a former Texas Ranger, uh, who decides to add extra officers to the force. So you might think, well, this is a great move, new police chief, new life into the investigation. Um, But according to, again, an article in Texas Monthly, Lucy decides to give orders to his police force to start stopping strangers in town, and they are going to ask them what their business is. If they decide those answers are not satisfactory, the strangers are given 24 hours and then forcibly kicked out of town. Um, But you also have a $3,000 reward offered by a committee of prominent businessmen and a $300 reward from the Texas governor to try and drum up leads and suspects. We're going to see another arrest in this case, and that's going to happen on January of 1886 when they arrest 23-year-old Jimmy Phillips, who's arrested for the murder of his wife, Ula, and a few weeks later, Moses Hancock, who's arrested for the murder of his wife, Susan. So we've got two white men, two husbands, and while, yep, it's usually true that the husband totally does commit the crime, in this case, it's very improbable that these two men are guilty. Uh, What are the chances that you've got two men who independently decide to kill their wives on the exact same night um, and then also decide to murder their wives and frame the serial killer that's terrorizing their city? I, I don't think that Jimmy and Moses are that smart to could be able to commit these crimes and so super unlikely that they are the guilty parties. Be that as it may, the case against Jimmy Phillips is actually a little bit complicated Um, So I want to do a bit of backstory on Ula. Her mother dies when she's a little girl and her father, who's a hotelier, gives up his children um, to their aunt to be raised. Ula's going to grow up and marry Jimmy in 1883 and is going to be pregnant a couple of times. When Ula is pregnant with her second child, she asks a friend to go to the drugstore and pick up chamomile flowers, extract of cottonwood, and ergot. These ingredients, if mixed in a certain way, um, could induce an abortion. So the evidence shows, and and we're going to see this in testimony later in the trial, that Ula and Jimmy did not have a good marriage, and Ula was very unhappy. In 1885, when Ula would have been about 17 years old, she's going to start frequenting a discreet hotel establishment owned by May Tobin. So this is a place where you could like meet someone for only an hour or two. Um, Also a place where Austin's highest paid prostitutes took their clientele, as well as people who were carrying on um, extramarital affairs or secret affairs. 
According to Skip Hollinsworth's book, The Midnight Assassin, Panic Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer, a man named Alexander Wilkie, who was a night watchman at one of the local saloons, comes barreling down Congress Avenue on a horse, yelling, A woman has been chopped to pieces! It's Mrs. Hancock on Water Street! And the Mrs. Hancock he's referring to is Susan Hancock, a refined lady of Austin who was grabbed from her bed, dragged outside while her husband was sleeping in a different room, and discovered dead in her backyard. And her backyard, ironically now, is a Four Seasons in Austin. So she is discovered by her husband with her head split in two and a sharp, thin object lodged in her brain. Her husband tells police that it was a really normal night. Uh, They went to bed as usual around 10 or 11, and they did sleep in adjoining rooms. But again, that was their normal routine. He claims he's woken up around midnight by a noise. uh, So he gets out of bed to investigate. And when he goes into his wife's room, he can see that the sheets and the bedspread are in a pile on the floor. Her clothes have been pulled out of her trunk and her bedroom window is open. Um, When he takes a close look he discovers blood on the windowsill he decides to walk to the backyard and he does spot a shadowy figure wearing dark clothes near the fence moses is going to grab a brick to throw at the perpetrator but he quickly jumps the fence and runs down an alley So Moses's next door neighbor is going to hear the commotion, come outside and help him carry his wife's body into the home. That neighbor then runs for help. And he's the person who finds Wilkie, who is the watchman that rides down the street proclaiming Mrs. Hancock's death. They're going to discover that the axe used to kill Susan actually belongs to Moses. And it was kept on the top of their wood pile um, near their back fence. It's only hours later when Ula Phillips is found nude with her nightgown pulled up to her neck and dead in her in-law's backyard. Now, this location is now the Austin Central Library. So very weird that um, the two murder locations of these last two victims are now central uh, places in Austin. Um, But that's just how it turned out. So Ula is found by following a trail of her blood. Her skull has been crushed and she has heavy pieces of timber laid across her body. So the wood has been placed across her breast uh, with, sorry, two across her breast and one across her stomach. And her arms are posed in an outstretched manner, um, similar to the crucifixion. Her husband, Jimmy, has also been wounded in the attack. He has a large gash above his ear, um, but luckily their son was completely unharmed. And I have to say there were children present at a couple of the murder scenes and the Annihilator does not ever harm the kids. Um, So I'm not really sure what that says because he definitely brutally murders other people. But for some reason, he lives he leaves the kids alone. Except there's one exception, and that was the 11-year-old that he does, in fact, murder. So again, um, we can't say that he didn't harm kids because there is a case of him brutally murdering an 11-year-old. The axe used in Ula's murder uh, is one that also belongs to that family. They state, again, it was normally just found on top of their woodpile. So the murder weapons in a lot of the cases are household axes that the killer just happens upon in easily accessible locations. Ula herself, um, according to an article in Texas Monthly, uh, was described as one of the loveliest women in Austin. She had pale skin and dark curly hair, and she was a descendant from two of Texas's most prominent pioneer families. 
It's reported that Ula visited this establishment at least a half dozen times in 1885, and it's actually reported that she was there briefly on Christmas Eve, the very night she was murdered. It's impossible to know the real reason why she started to frequent the hotel. It could have been that she had an affair, or it could have been um, that she turned to prostitution. So Jimmy Phillips was not a great husband. He was a drunk and he was abusive. Witnesses testify at court that he had thrown a cup at Ula and chased her with a knife during their marriage. Uh, there are other stories that after Jimmy had been drinking, Ula and her sister run out of the home screaming for police. Ula is also um, taken to hiding at her sister's home for days at a time. So there's evidence that there was abuse there was violence in this home already. So Philip's trial, uh, which happens before Hancock's trial, is going to be a massive deal. The courtroom is filled to capacity every day. Philip's father hires him a defense team, and that team includes William Walton, who is a successful defense lawyer, having previously defended a man named Ben Thompson, a former uh, Austin City Marshal, in his murder trial in 1882. His other defense lawyer uh, is a man called John Hancock. The prosecution is going to spin a theory at trial that Ula is petrified of her husband, um, but also petrified that her husband had started to learn about her extramarital activities. And so she's started to sleep with an axe in her bedroom as protection. Uh, they claim that Phillips started to assault Ula, who then strikes him in the head, which leads Philip to enter a frenzied state where he kills Ula. But... He has the wherewithal to throw off suspicion that he's going to take forensic countermeasures and make it look like the servant girl annihilator was the killer. He does this by carrying Ula into the alley and giving her wounds consistent with the other victims. One of the defense strategies is going to be that Phillips simply doesn't match the footprints um, discovered at the scene of the crime. So the defense team has Phillips take off his shoe and make a footprint to compare with the bloody footprint that was left on their porch the night of the murder. And in a moment of incredible drama in the courtroom, Phillips' foot is actually much smaller than the footprint. But the prosecution argues, no, no, no. I don't believe that because the footprint is going to be flatter because he's actually got a heavier load. He's carrying his wife at the time he leaves his footprint. So Walton, the defense lawyer, has Jimmy physically pick him up uh, and then make a full uh, make another footprint. And it still does not match. So this is like super similar to the OJ's, you know, you must acquit if it doesn't fit glove moment. But just, you know, about a century and a bit earlier. May Tobin also testifies in trial um, that Ula had met at least four men at her hotel and in, had in fact come over on Christmas Eve around 11. Uh, but she says that she turned her away because they didn't have any rooms available that night. The jury does end up convicting Phillips of the murder of his wife and they sentence him to seven years. But it's only going to be six months later that the Court of Appeal of Texas overturns Jimmy's conviction and they order a new trial. So they state that the prosecution simply had insufficient evidence connecting him to the killing or proving that he had any knowledge of her extramarital affairs. If we move on to Moses Hancock, uh, the main pieces of evidence against Hancock are going to be a letter written by Susan to Moses only months before her murder. The letter is discovered in a fake flower box, and it states that although she did love him, she just couldn't live with his drinking anymore. This leads to the theory that he gets drunk and attacks and kills Susan uh, because he thought she was going to leave him. 
But the trial results in a hung jury. uh, And this happens because Moses's teen daughter testifies that her mother never gave her father that letter. So he never saw it and had no knowledge of what was written. Both men are released and never retried. So Jimmy Phillips moves to Georgetown. He marries. He starts a new life. Moses Hancock also leaves Austin. Um, I don't have any further information on that. But uh, that's the end of those two trials. Over the course of the entire murder investigation, over 400 men are rounded up and interrogated, but it never leads to an actual conviction in this case. However, there are a lot of suspects over time that have emerged as potential annihilators, and I'll go over some of the most prominent ones. The first man who has been rumored to be the annihilator is a man named William Swain, and he's actually one of Ula Phillips' rumored clients. Uh, He's a state comptroller, and supposedly he was the man that she was with the very night she was murdered. Some think Swain, therefore, is responsible for all of the murders, um, but there's no additional evidence that actually backs that up. In 2014, PBS airs an episode of History Detectives featuring the Annihilator, and they bring up Nathan Elgin, who is a native to Austin and a young African-American cook. So there's been a few bloody footprints that have been found at some of the crime scenes. People actually think the killer removed his shoes before committing the murder so he could enter and exit out of homes quickly. One distinctive footprint found at the scene of a crime had only four toes on his right foot, uh, and this footprint matches Elgin's. So there's not any information other than that because Elgin is shot and killed by police. So he's shot by police when he grabs a woman from a local saloon and tries to drag her away. Uh, Police arrive on the scene, they end up shooting Elgin, and he dies the following day from his injuries. There's also a third suspect that comes up a lot in this case, and and perhaps the most prominent one, and that's Maurice, a Malaysian cook who spent most of his life cooking on ships, but then he lands a job at an Austin hotel, the Pearl House, in 1885, and a lot of the murders actually occur fairly close to this hotel. It's reported that once Maurice leaves Austin for New Orleans in 1886, uh, that's the same time that the murders stop. So they make that connection. Maurice actually ironically ends up heading to London after. Uh, So some believe that the Austin murders and the murders by Jack the Ripper were done by the same person. Um, And Maurice's name comes up in that as well. You could argue... um, that the victims of Jack the Ripper are similar to the Annihilator's victims. We've got lower class vulnerable women uh, who had deep cuts and body mutilation, but there's a lot of other notable differences in the case. Uh, Jack confines his murders to prostitutes in a poor district and the Annihilator ends up crossing an entire city um, and chooses victims of different races and classes. Uh, What's frustrating though, is that the Whitechapel murders end up stopping just as abruptly as the Austin murders. So it's a question that we're probably never going to get an answer to. One last theory is that the murders weren't committed by the same person at all. So criminologist Scott Bond, after reviewing the information, uh, his conclusion was these crimes not committed by the same person. He says that serial killers usually don't kill victims of different races and social classes. And these last two victims who were white women and of a different social class are simply too different from the first six. Uh, Whatever the case may be and whatever you believe, this case remains one of the oldest unsolved murder sprees in U.S. history. 
Okay, so that is it for the case of the Servant Girl Annihilator and episode two of Historical True Crime. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Don't forget to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have case, sorry, if you have case suggestions, feedback, anything of that sort, you can follow us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or shoot us an email at Historical True Crime Pod at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you next week with an entirely new episode of one of history's darkest crimes and criminals. We'll see you then.